Is there a separate Wikipedia for Canada or do you use the same one? (laughs) Uh. Fun fact. Since 1979, there has been an elected representative in the German Bundestag who cannot have been elected because he isn't a real person. Okay. (laughs) An elected representative in the Bundestag who is not a real person. Right. Yeah. So his name is Jakob Maria Mierschied. I don't think I'm quite saying that last name right, uh, because even though I speak German... I'm not a native German speaker, and that one's kind of hard. Uh, but And he has a birthplace, as you would expect, for people. Well, people who exist. <laughs> yeah, and a religious affiliation. Uh, okay. I, think he ha- he, he, I think he's a widow now, but he has four kids. He has an extensive personal history. He's got an active Twitter account, which, I mean, as we know, is the true measure of all sentience. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a seat as a representative for Germany's SPD party in their, like, Congress or Parliament equivalent. Isn't that like one of the legit parties too? It's not like it's a that's a that's rando. a legit. No, that's one of the two main parties currently in a coalition running their government. Right. So this guy was created in 1979 when two members of parliament decided that they needed a worthy successor to a colleague of theirs who had recently passed away. And since then, he's been something of a phenomenon in the in the German language version of the official Bundestag website. They list 615 members of, of their parliament. In the English and French ones, they only list 614. Okay. So there's, there's a cover-up. Is this guy... Oh, yeah. Oh, this is deep, deep state. And uh, the the quote I got from the people who created him was that they wanted to remind members from time to time of true life, which may well be funny. Which is like a, just a very German thing to say. Okay. And But he has his own stationery, his own email address. Sometimes he issues press releases. So, okay, so I have some questions, not to derail this train. No. But I would very much like to know if this member is a voting member. Well, he's on some committees. Okay. Okay. And he has put out statements regarding, I think he's like a backbencher, you know? Okay. Yeah. I would imagine that might be an easier role for a non existent person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There there is a Mearsheed's law in Germany. Okay. Where, which is a, which is an article in 83, uh, uh, the party magazine of the SPD, Vorwärts, published an article purportedly written by him claiming the discovery of a law. Okay. Which is the Mearsheed Law, which is basically the idea that the SPD vote share will equal the index of crude steel production. And and it must be so? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, but what I find fascinating about this guy, and there's many things we can get into about him, is that he's not even the only fictional, well-known fictional person in Germany? Okay, so this is this is one of their this is one of their go-tos. So something about Germany, yeah. So he so there's there's a guy named Friedrich Gottlob Nagelmann who's a apparently a well-known fictional lawyer, and there's a, a guy named Edmund Friedemann Drecker who's a a diplomat, and all three of them have like extensive publication lists in reputable sources. I can see. Okay. So I can see as a law, like a fake lawyer, that might be challenging. You know, sure. like I can see them having a hard time having it an impact. But I can see how a fake diplomat, like a lot of diplomacy, is really about how you feel, right? So I could see how a fake bim- diplomat would have some success. Well, apparently, all three of these fake people are friends. 
Uh, sure, because, I mean, because, they have something in common. Because Mearsheed's official Bundestag website quote is apparently, I am neither an invention nor a patent, I am the solution. Like the constitutional lawyer Friedrich Nagelmann and the professional diplomat Edmund Trecker, my colleagues in the judiciary and the executive with whom I like to work, I am one of the pillars of our state. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can't argue with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. on account of the person who said it not existing so you just you can't you're you you're, can't who would you argue with? to argue with there's yeah. no one to argue with yeah in 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 march of 2013 the president of the bundestag congratulated at the beginning of the of the session for that that year congratulated him and the entire house on the occasion of this fictional person's 80th birthday oh i feel like they might start to get a con- continuity problem in 20 25 years <laughs> well he was re-elected in 2017 so he's good for now so not to over not to dig too close into this dig dig closely uh you say re-elected what exactly is the mechanism of him being elected probably just an announcement of the results okay so the the german people vote for a certain number of seats and then as reported by the parliament there's one additional seat comes in the results than was voted for correct yeah he's okay. he's from i mean he represents a specific oh he was the ele- alleged deputy chairman of one of the committees the committee for small and medium-sized business in 81 and 82 that's an important committee so yeah he was born they like he has a birthplace he represents a certain district and stuff that i guess uh, i guess doesn't have another representative I mean, maybe it's a district that's, I mean, it's probably either a district that's so small that it's funny, the idea they have a district, or it's a district that doesn't exist itself. It doesn't exist. Like a Bielefeld kind of situation. Or wait a minute, I forget. Does Bielefeld exist? Uh, We should talk about that sometime. Yeah, we can add that to the follow-up list. I remember there being (laughs) some scheme around Bielefeld. Oh, there for sure have been, there have for sure been schemes. Was Bielefeld a German thing? It is. Yeah, okay. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I, should I? I will say that I have been to Bielefeld. Ah, okay. So then uh, that makes me inclined to think that it exists. Well, I mean, not to make I, too many assumptions, or I'm part of the conspiracy. Very fact based. Well, yeah, I wouldn't put it past you. you seem exactly. like that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. So I just think this is great. There's something like really amazing about the idea that for the last what is it 1979 so 41 years that or 40 years that the uh that the that the official bundestag the like the official government of germany has acknowledged this this fictional human being yeah i i feel like i could i could be a fictional i could be a fictional member of parliament you could yeah, well, I mean, I feel like being like a real <laughs> member of parliament would be a lot of work. What do you just tell people you're a member of parliament? You'd have to fly to Ottawa all the time. Yeah. Ottawa's not like it's not a great. Place. Don't get us in more trouble with Canadians. <laughs> Every time you talk about a Canadian city, I, feel, I think as a West Coast, I can make fun of Ottawa as a yeah. city. Okay, Ottawans, is it Ottawans? We we feel your pain. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if the people who live in Ottawa feel like it's a painful place to be, but, you know, most of our listeners are probably not in Ottawa. So. No, no. I'm saying the pain of you being a jerk to them. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ottawa. <laughs> Mostly. Actually, yeah, it's 
it's kind of it's a little more personal because Ottawa in particular is uh, the headquarters of Shopify, which is one of the largest tech companies in Canada, and they have a bit of a tendency to. Uh, they have a strong recruitment drive because you know, they're growing rapidly and they are taking people from all around Canada and shipping them all off to uh, Ottawa. And so you have you know people in the Vancouver tech community and other tech communities around Canada uh, that then are like, bye, I'm going to Ottawa to work at Shopify. And so we start to get a little bit of resentment. Uh, and then also just the comedy of like, you know, then whenever we see them, we could be like, how's Ottawa? And they'll be like, it's uh, it's OK. But Shopify is great. Um, I yeah so. I just I I I can't imagine this is my time to be a jerk. I can't imagine uh, existing in a world where one company had that kind of pull that they could get people to move to another city. It's just me it was just my way of being a jerk saying that I live in I live in Silicon Valley. You know? Yeah, where it's nothing but companies subverting and disrupting the employment market. I mean Yeah, they're in, just affecting everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but they 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 cancel each other out. They cancel each other out with like giant powerful magnets on all sides. Whereas like in Seattle. Yeah. I just want to point out that I was intentionally being a jerk there. I <laughs> I, I do not agree with the things I was saying. I imagine in like Seattle, Amazon and Microsoft are like big enough yes, and yeah. rare enough in their eyes that they're fairly disruptive more because the... it's like there's a lot of tech companies in seattle now and a lot of the big companies here have offices in seattle because seattle people don't want to leave seattle typically so yeah apple like, just announced a giant seattle office. yeah apple google facebook but amazon and certainly when i was growing up microsoft was you know microsoft and boeing were basically like they were the economy of seattle for my childhood yeah, and if you're a software engineer that's going to work at Boeing, then like I would imagine, no, it's going to be Microsoft. Were, for yeah, sure. it's going to be Microsoft, right? Like, but Microsoft's not in Seattle; they're in Redmond. Uh, yeah, and Amazon is like the entirety of downtown Seattle now. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit, but it's kind of yeah. kind of fascinating to me. Speaking of urban schemes, I've got a I've got a fact, an urban scheme fact. Okay, hit me with your scheme related. We love scheme, you know, scheme corner is a popular corner here. Fun fact. There's a skyscraper in Manhattan that in order to exploit New York zoning and achieve the highest possible maximum height was recently built with one quarter of its 1400 feet in height unoccupied. Wait, what? <laughs> so there's this so you know Manhattan real estate yeah fairly strange market yes not yeah. entirely bounded by the normal laws of economics as we think of them sure and so building a tall tower there is more economically valuable than it is in other places and so uh the developers are willing to go to greater lengths to build really tall towers but it had not mm -hmm. occurred to me that they might be willing to go to this length so the the tower in question is 432 Park Avenue. I'll send you a picture of it, which I'll also put in the show notes. Just grab this. Give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. It looks like a tall building. Yeah, not just a tall building, but like in New York, in midtown Manhattan, where there are many, many tall buildings. This is like tow comically tall, way above the other ones over you know looking over central park here comically tall yes comically comically tall and uh i find it kind of i find it fascinating how they were able to achieve this and what the consequences were okay. so 
rewinding uh, back to 1961, uh, Manhattan zoning has been set in terms of floor area ratio, which is a, a common thing in a lot of cities where they basically say, okay, for this plot of land or this neighborhood or this zone, you have a ratio of how much floor space you're able to build of homes or offices or whatever uh, as a ratio of of how big the lot is. Uh, so if you have like a 10,000 square foot lot with a ratio of two, then you could build up to 20,000 square feet of office space or of, of homes basically on that lot. And it would be up to you as the builder if you want to make that 20,000 uh, square feet as like a two-story tall warehouse shaped building that covers the whole lot or if you want to make a, like a tall tower you could make like spread that 20,000 square feet over a 20 story tower that where each floor was only a thousand square feet so it'd be like super narrow you wouldn't probably practically be able to do that narrow with that particular architectural constraint but the idea is that your constraint is you get this many square feet of build for each square foot of land yeah so i've been i've been watching a a lot of really old episodes of this old house recently for okay reasons i love that show and and i and i i'm in the 80s and at one point they go on a tour of the trump tower okay and it's like 1984 and they tour the trump tower they meet the architect they meet ivana trump they meet Donald Trump. It's very weird to watch in 2019. Were you were you watching this because of that or just coincidentally no. you happened to come across no, it? No, no, no. It's just a random episode of the show and they're like, we're going to go on a field trip today to Trump Tower. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. It was fascinating. It was like in that exact moment in the 80s when like the idea of sort of greed as a positive thing was just everywhere. Right. It was like, look how fancy this building is. Isn't it amazing and wonderful in all possible ways? So it's, it's, it's really fascinating to watch from a from a sociological perspective, but why I'm bringing this up is that, uh, they, they were talking about the distinctive shape of that building, which I don't know if you know what it looks like, but it kind of like, uh, well here, let me, let me also show you a picture and then you will know what I'm talking about. Do you see that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at a very, like a kind of pixelated building with lots of chunks. Well, the reason it looks pixelated is because it kind of does pixelate its way from a square building into like less of a square building like parts of it are still there right and but parts of it are kind of missing and at at one point bob vila who at the time was still the host of this old house asked the architect whose name is dare scut which is just a very (laughs) weird name but anyway he says you know why you know wouldn't you have made more money if you had like used all that space all that space that's missing there and he said no because we have to your point we have and now i I get what you're saying we have a certain amount of square space uh, square footage limit and by putting it in this way we could build the building significantly taller and that makes the apartments on the top much 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 more valuable because of the views and it's new york and everyone wants to be really high up so by doing this model we were able to create a taller building and therefore had more valuable real estate than if we had built a shorter squatter building with the same amount of overall space Exactly. So in the 80s, you get the Trump Tower thing where they have these towers that kind of narrow as they go up. And so you can get some stuff up at the top um, that is uh, that is more valuable real estate using that rule. But the scheme can't comes in. Yeah, that's right. This was a scheme. Or what would I call? I mean, I'm I'm a little liberal with my usage of the word scheme. We've been it's been noted. The factors have noticed, but 
I I like a good scheme, and I like anything scheme adjacent. And to me, this is a scheme. So to me, this what I what I call the scheme. The scheme comes in when developers realize that the ratio of floor space is specifically occupied floor space. So occupied floor space. Yeah. So where the, you can actually, you know, the the apartments in the case of a residential building. Oh. So if a floor only has mechanical like for the elevators, oh. ventilation, stuff like that, it doesn't count to your square footage. Oh, so you just have like 20 elevators? Well, so elevators are a big problem and a tall tower, and the taller you make it, the bigger a problem they are because you need more and more elevator tube uh, thickness basically in order to get sufficient capacity to the top and actually anything you need to get from the bottom to the top like water lines and all of that is a big problem in taller and taller towers especially really skinny ones like this tower here is ridiculously skinny the one that we're looking at the 432 park avenue um but you yeah the elevator floors like there's like you know mechanical floors often for uh elevator ventilation and and uh electrical and things like that and so what they they did so the the kind of path to building this ludicrously tall tower um was first to acquire you know a bunch of neighboring lots like they do like lot assembly pretty standard um but they did it in an area that already had a really high ratio had like a 15 square foot per foot of land so you could already build like quite high so you could build like a 16 or a 15 uh story cube on the lot already based on the the zoning and then what they did is they accumulated enough so that they could using the latest and greatest construction techniques and advanced practices they got enough zoned floor space that if they made the the tower as skinny as they could then they could get up to maybe 70 stories tall uh, which is cool, like, you know, sure, 70 stories, but this is like right beside Central Park, Manhattan, they call it Billionaire's Row. So every story they can add, then they can charge even more for that like ridiculous penthouse at, at the top or in the penthouse floors at the top. And so sure. they made the ceilings 12 feet tall because the height isn't what they're zoned for. It's the floor space. So you might as well make each story as tall as you can. So, okay, cool. 12 okay, feet tall. Cool. So that got us to about a thousand feet. Twelve feet tall, people are happy now. Twelve feet tall, people are thrilled, uh, <laughs> and six feet tall and five feet tall, people are like, "Oh wow, oh, cool!" These, big, look big at these apartment. ceilings. Look at these ceilings. Yeah. Um, but still, then that only got them to a thousand feet tall on the building, which is like, "Meh, your building's only a thousand feet tall." And so what they <laughs> they did is they added these. They're called mechanical voids, which are these empty spaces in the building that are nominally for the quote unquote mechanical uh, parts of the building. So they take uh, these mechanical floors, which are for like HVAC and, and stuff like that. And they make them really frequent and really huge. So they build six floors of housing at 12 feet tall each, Uh and then two entire quote unquote floors of void that has some mechanics, 24 feet tall of nothing. Yeah, 24 feet of, of nothing with some, like, you know, there's some ventilation helping, sure. like, that helps ventilate the floors above and below or whatever. And then six more floors of actual housing above it. And then they just repeat that pattern all the way up to, to the top of the, the tower. Oh, this is um, how they have these lights on all the time. 
Yeah, yeah. And so there's a, like, it, it's actually helpful also from our architectural perspective, because then you can make the tower even narrower and thus even taller, because then there isn't like, uh, as much, uh, like tubing and stuff that needs to run the entire height of the tower, or like super, you only have to go to the next mechanical floor. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff that only needs to be a maximum six floored floors of tubing or wiring and stuff like that. So it's quite a clever solution. Like that part of it is clever, clever. Uh, The making those areas way taller than they need to be is like clever in like a more of a schemey way to to me. Um, But what it was able to do is that it got their all important penthouse up to the 92nd floor at 1400 feet off the ground and so that's how you get this ridiculous view of central park uh that way towers over the extremely tall towers uh that are in midtown manhattan by having these like frequent giant mechanical spaces that don't actually really do anything yeah by the way this building as far as i can tell is the if you do everything in sort of a a fair way the tallest building in new york yeah the the like um one World Trade Center has like a spire that's that's yeah, like substantially taller. As does the Empire State Building. So it's the third yeah. tallest building by that measure, but it's the tallest roof. Yeah, it's taller than the Empire State Building. Uh, substantially, it's almost as tall as the Sears Tower, like the which is now the Willis Tower. But it's apparently the tallest residential building in the world, and the tallest building in the world that is only known by its address, which is a really random record to have. Well, it's kind of interesting because it speaks to like the clientele. Like I, my sense that I get is that like 432 Park Avenue is almost trying to be a, like whatever the opposite of like the Trump branding is like, it's not trying to be like the gold and flashy. Like if you look at the building, it's this ultra modernist, ultra simple, like spend tens of millions of dollars on this apartment and don't even have a name for the building, kind of, I don't know. Did you see that the inspiration to for the design of this building from its architect was a trash can? <laughs> <laughs> I should hook up this guy with Johnny Ive and get them chatting. It is a very Johnny Ive building, actually, because it's so similar. We'll make the, the picture of it on the show notes, so if you... Go uh, look at the podcast art in a podcast app that supports it. You should see the picture of the building. Yeah, but understand you're not looking at a trash can. You're looking at a very tall building. You're looking at a very, very tall building. Don't try to throw any trash at it. Yeah. (laughs) So they're going along well. They've got to the 92nd floor, 1,400 feet up. So that's great. But they've created another problem, which is wind oh because they have this extremely narrow tower that's extremely tall and so it's wobbly um and so even if you make it strong enough to be able to withstand the wind forces at that at that height then the the tower would like would sway and in the words of the architect be unacceptable to residents which my understanding is basically you get seasick in your multi-million dollar penthouse um so they had to solve the wind problem and they did that in a really clever way which is those mechanical floors which are like you know 24 feet of mostly nothing and an elevator shaft they just didn't put windows on those floors and the window just the wind just goes right through the wind goes right through the building so i'm going to send you an image of what that looks like by the way, apparently, much like you know, all of your hometown, home city, the 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 owners of all of these apartments apparently don't really live there. 
Yeah, you can. It's infamous for being mostly just all the windows are dark. It's empty ten months of the year. Yeah, on average, apparently. On average, that's crazy. <laughs> for the prices of these ridiculously yeah, the, the, expensive, the penthouse was ninety-five million dollars. So take a look at this. Take a look at this image, and you can okay. kind of zoom in on the brightly. They light up the empty parts to kind of brag about their cleverness. They light mm-hmm. up these empty sections of the the building where you can see that the wind bit can basically just go through uh, which reduces the seasickness problem which again is one of those like like schemey but clever solutions to trying to make a ludicrously and completely impractically tall building well have you ever been to the top of the empire state building i have so i only did that for the first time a few years ago and what i was struck by was that it just didn't feel right Mm, like your perspective on the world may started to make it not seem like the world anymore something like that it was because i don't i don't really have any real fear of heights so i wasn't worried about that but it's just the movement of the building was in the weirdest way not in any way stable yeah well this is going to be probably a lot worse than that because they engineered it to be basically on the limit of what they thought people would tolerate I mean, that was wild to me. I was just like, how just being up here, I just had no, and maybe you get used to it, but I just had no, and I, I don't, I'm not, I don't get seasick uh, pretty much at all. And I don't have a fear of heights. And I was still like, this just seems wrong. They need more wind holes on that uh, Empire State Building. Well, that might be the problem, but I was just like, I would not want to live up here. So the the wind holes on this 432 Park Avenue caused one final problem, which is that, uh, I mean, the wind holes and them Birds. ostentatiously lighting them up. Well, I'm, you know what? Actually, it might have caused additional problems, but I know of at least one additional problem, okay. Okay. which is that it called public attention to the fact that they were flouting zoning rules to build this ludicrous testament to capitalism and wealth inequality, oh, abusing the, the zoning code. Sure. So uh, earlier this year, New York City closed the loophole and uh, the any new designs that are submitted have to actually use square footage for uh mechanical voids that are above like a reasonable size so this will be like last of a generation apparently the architect that made this one has already gotten one through approval that has by some arguments an even more ridiculous void which i haven't (laughs) done much investigation because i don't think it's built yet um but yeah they basically said uh yeah sorry the party's over you have to actually make housing in the height that you're gonna be building um yeah but you know in the end if the penthouse that penthouse at the top 8200 square feet six bedroom seven bathroom with a library uh sold for a hundred million dollars so yeah i guess they they had the last laugh people will keep doing it yeah yeah until you Stop them, and that's basically the whack-a-mole of uh, of high-end real estate. This guy's designed a lot of buildings. Yeah, that the star architect phenomena is kind of fascinating. When you're like, "Hey, I'm going to spend whatever many billion dollars to build this building," do I get somebody who's built another ludicrous building that had super high budget, or do I get a new person? No, I'll get the person who has some track record and will also help sell these extremely expensive units on the name of some star architect right at some point it has to be you know i live in a whatever his name is vinoli Vignoli. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly like you know yeah that makes sense that is wild so do you think that qualifies as a scheme uh yes yeah excellent yeah no for sure i think that definitely <laughs> qualifies as a scheme yeah. and uh, unfortunately now for him a closed scheme although if as you said he's gonna 
scheme his way in it one, one or two more times first, you know, more power to him. Like it almost proves that it was a scheme if they make it not allowed anymore after you do it a couple <laughs> times, then it was probably a scheme. I forget if I mentioned this on the show before, but but fun fact, in Roman times, you could be convicted of a crime that wasn't illegal at the time you did it. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, the law would change and then they would retroactively punish you. <laughs> like, oh, you should have known. I can see sometimes where that would be, like, when you have, like, a banking crisis and then they analyze what people were doing and you're like, oh, man, really? Okay, well, that wasn't technically illegal, but seriously, what you thought that was okay? Uh, so I can see why for that kind of thing. You might want to have some regulatory something, something, but the like, you know, you know what? I think we've decided that this particular behavior is, is no longer acceptable. And so we're just going to try to go back and find evidence of people who have been doing it yeah. and prosecute them. It seems I can see why they, they patch that flaw in modern legal systems. Yeah. That would be a real problem today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would be abused horribly. Mm-hmm. Although we have yeah. the other way around, obviously, where they have things that, were very illegal and then they're rolling back um you know cannabis laws is the sort of particularly big example at least in canada right now where it's like right but it's place to place whether they let you out after that yeah and then there's like extra red tape and stuff so it's like people are able to buy cannabis from the government but then there's also people who are on sentences in jail for possession of cannabis which yeah like you don't have to think too hard to find the injustice in that so for sure yeah it was one of the moments when i was really proud when washington state legalized they there were a, some number of cases still in progress mm-hmm. that would have wrapped up before the law took effect and the da of uh, the county i grew up in said you know yes i could do this but clearly that's wrong and like no we're gonna just drop all these charges yeah, and this is one of the problems, not to get too deep into philosophy of morality, but understanding the difference in between the law and what is right. Yeah. And when those aren't aligned, like it takes an extra level of thought, which if you're the DA or you're the police, a police officer or something like that, then that can be challenging when your your nominal job is to enforce the law. But the law as written and as actually on the books is not morally right and then uh then it's always good to see obviously there's more to be done on that but good to see when people actually step up yeah and we could list examples of this all night but i have a not understanding fun fact for you a not understanding fun fact like a fun fact that you don't understand and you want my help to to make sense of it no (laughs) (laughs) fun fact a lot of cultures have an equivalent idiom to it's all greek to me what changes is the language. As in, like, it's all Spanish to me. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So so this fact came from a fan of the show on Twitter who's at Limmy. I hope I said that correctly. And at Limmy challenged me to investigate this. Specifically, the meaning of the idiom being that the speaker can't understand something, presumably because they don't speak Greek. Right. But if you're Greek, then do you say that? Right. Exactly. So, so, so th- that's exactly what it is. So it's all English to me. Yeah, so I wanted to say, first, before we get into that, let's talk about what the idiom we have is, because it's kind of interesting. Did you know that it's a, a, a dead metaphor? Have you ever heard that term? A dead metaphor, no. So a dead metaphor is an idiom where the in, the underlying imagery or concepts don't mean anything to anyone anymore in the same way they used to, 
but everyone understands the idiom. So you can keep using it to mean what it means. But if you actually deconstruct it, it doesn't necessarily make the sense that it did at one time. So it's a a metaphor that has devolved into an idiom. And I imagine like a lot of idioms are probably that like that. Like we have a lot of English idioms that you don't know why like reference. Right. Why is tight fisted mean this? Or why does, you know, why are you falling in love? Where are you falling from? Where are you falling to? Yeah. And things that reference like uh, cowboy times and wagons and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So no one knows the exact origin of this idiom. Going back to last week when we talked about not finding the origins of idioms, but it may be a direct translation of a Latin phrase, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I don't know how to pronounce Latin. But what it meant was it is Greek. It cannot be read, which was apparently used by monks in the Middle Ages who were scribes who didn't know how to read Greek anymore. Oh, So at that time, it's not that they didn't know Greek, but that Greek was like considered never readable again. Right. They were just like, we're done with this. We don't, nobody knows Greek. Do you know anyone who knows Greek? Nope. Okay, cool. Well, we can't read this anymore. So it's, it's first found in English in the more modern period, early modern English and like in Shakespeare times. But what I found more interesting, and this is the point that Lemmy mentioned to me is, okay, so if a lot of cultures have this idiom, this idea that I don't understand what you're saying because I don't speak that language. And we in English say it's all Greek to me. What do they say in Greek? It's all English to me? No. <laughs> in Greek, they either say, this seems to me Alabernese, which is their version of gibberish. <laughs> okay. Or, this strikes me as Chinese. Ah, interesting. Now, that begs the obvious question. What do the Chinese say? Uh, that, does, that does invite that question. <laughs> yeah. Chinese, of course, is not one language. No, it's like 20 or something. But we can look at two of the more well-known ones to English speakers, Cantonese and Mandarin. Sure, yes. Let's. In Cantonese, they say, is this ghost script? Okay. Which means, I can't read your handwriting. You must be a ghost. You must be a ghost. And in Mandarin, they say a few different things, but the closest version to the Greek example is, sounds like bird language. Okay, I like that one. Yeah. So at that point, I was like, okay. Okay, so what do birds say? (laughs) Yeah. Once I couldn't do that. Uh, I was like, I'm going to look at the list and see what other places are people doing. And I'm going to send you the list of various examples that I found of what different countries say. And what's interesting is if you look at the list, the most common languages to be used are Chinese, Greek, Spanish, Turkish, Hebrew, Arabic, and gibberish. But if you actually track it, in almost every case, if you start with one, it's all X to me and follow the countries, it will end up at Chinese. Ah, interesting. Well, because Chinese doesn't flow out to another language because they that talk stops about birds at birds, and ghosts. Yeah. yeah, and ghosts. It makes some amount of sense that these are all like most languages are using. It's all and then a language that not only they don't understand but uses a totally different script. Yeah, so that's apparently very very common, right? Like Arabic, Hebrew, some of these. Yeah, it's very common. Although Spanish is a really common one, and I don't know why. Spanish. The Spanish say this is Chinese or Aramaic, which is cool. So the the Spanish lead to China, which is and a lot of things lead to Spain, which is why th- that works. But there are some really fun ones in here. Yeah, some of these are great. Yeah. One of my favorites is in Turkey, where they say, I am French to the topic, which apparently means in this instance, I am a French person who does not speak Turkish. <laughs> right. So it's inverted. 
It's inverted. Germany also has one of my favorites where they say, I only understand train station. I only understand train station. That sounds like an emoji sentence. Yeah, really it does. And I asked my German-speaking wife, why? And she said, I, I don't know. <laughs> we just, just I, I, I understand only train station. I like the Icelandic one uh, that they'll refer to, not, not an existing language, but they refer to it as fish egg language. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> I guess the, the language that fish eggs speak? Yeah, yeah. There's looks like a book from heaven. Oh, this is the Bulgarian one is uh says it's like you're talking patagonian right which is like a specific portion of argentina yeah which is yeah that's very very specific thing for bulgarians to know about well enough that it enters their language yeah yeah yeah, yeah. very very weird a lot of places use hebrew which i guess to your point makes sense in, in indonesian if they can't read it or at least tulisan which is I guess one of the Indonesian languages, they will refer to the writing as chicken feet, which makes a lot of sense to me, like just random scratchings. Yeah, exactly. They also do that in Javanese, which is another Indonesian language. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Dutch language, that makes a lot of sense in Indonesia, right? Oh, yeah. Another one of the Mandarin ones is Martian, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I like that it's specifically Martian, though. Martian language. It's, it's, I also like that. I mean, I'm not sure exactly the shared origins or how old that phrase is, but I like the idea that multiple cultures came up with the idea, like before spaceflight, that Marsh, that Mars is the place that there would be other life and that they would then have yeah. their own culture and language. And yeah, it's very interesting. Of course, it's because the Martians came here and you know met everybody, and that's you know how that. Yeah, all the origin. Uh, what do they? What do they call it? Xeno origin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In in Persian, apparently, you might say, "Am I speaking Turkish?" Which again is sort of inverted. Yeah, that's good. I always like the like different varied takes on the same thing in different languages, idiomatic expressions, which are obviously kind of nonsense things to start with. Yeah, I would like to do uh, some fun facts about some of the idioms in other languages because they seem ridiculous, and then you look at ours and they're equally ridiculous. I, I mean, you you don't even need to go that far. Like, I think it'd be interesting to dig into some of the idioms in English, like, you know, batten down the hatches and stuff like that. Like, I, I, I maybe, I don't know how you recast that into a fact, but. So is this the beginning of idiom corner here at the, at the fun fact? Idiom corner. Yeah. I, I had a hard time actually with every once in a while with an idiom that is just dying like one of those dead metaphors where it people are still relying on the assumption that you know what the thing is like a um, radio buttons um was one like in the 70s maybe into the 80s i guess on radio in a car you would have these buttons to switch the channels and or do in between station to station and when you push one the other uh, selected station would pop out and i did actually my parents had a car that had that um but i was just young enough that i'd kind of forgot about it and then um somebody and kind of been referencing radio buttons in the context of uh an app and the metaphor was just like completely dead to the person that they were that they were talking about which makes kind of that's how it happens right computing is full of those right like i mean so many people growing up today you have no idea why there's a a weird sort of square icon that means save right? yeah they yeah. don't know what a the floppy, floppy disk, disk is or mm -hmm. you know for a long time using records as a thing now people get that again but like if you use like a mini disk or something you'd be like what is that and I, I don't know if that can be fixed no i think it just happens but they become these dead metaphors and i think that's a really cool concept it's like 
the idea that that we all have a shared meaning for something, even if the origin is no longer there. So at one point, yeah, people were literally forgetting Greek, and that's why it's Greek, because it was a language of antiquity. A lot of like classical knowledge was in Greek, right? So the fact that people couldn't read it anymore was actually a big deal. But now when you look at it, it's like, why Greek? Like, I mean, it's written in another alphabet, but why not Cyrillic? Why not, you know, Russian? Why not, why not Chinese? Why not whatever? But it's just, you know, that's why. It's kind of cool. Now I'm like digging into dead metaphor examples. Probably not the time for it. Do we have any follow-up? Yes, I have two. Uh, the first is some people objected to my fact of broccoli being steamed as amazing. Yeah, I was one of those people. <laughs> you you objected in real time, and then some people followed <laughs> up. Uh, either just to say um, that <laughs> my, but to clarify, mine was not that it was delicious. It was just that that's not a fact. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a fact. But some people <laughs> argued that either a it was a bad fact, or mm. b that there were superior methods of preparing broccoli, uh, which okay. is true if you have a little bit more time or willing to put a little bit more. Uh, effort and not a lot more uh, you could just roast broccoli uh, in the oven and it is even more delicious than steaming but it's slightly more work so uh, you have a little bit of trade-off there um, but we got actually two separate people encouraged us to encourage you to try roasting your broccoli roasted broccoli yeah and just put it on a pan maybe a little bit of olive oil a little bit of salt and pepper that sounds delicious stick it in there i'm gonna try it with some tasmanian pepper salt you got to get some tasmanian pepper salt in there yeah. Do you have anything to say about Tasmanian pepper salt? I know there was some exchange going on. Right? Oh, people are trying to help me find it. It's still, we have not found the Holy Grail. There is, we have a listener in Ta- who's in Tasmania who was, who was saying that they might help. And we also have someone else who found a, a, a different Tasmanian pepper salt that you can order, but it's missing one of the ingredients from the one that I like. So I'm not sure. I might have to try it out and report back. I'm pretty stoked that we have multiple listeners interacting with us on a Tasmanian specific <laughs> topic. This is pretty good. And if anyone else wants to jump in, you know, we're on Twitter at Fun Fact FM. All the Tasmanian salt related follow up should go there. Yeah. Yeah. We also have a piece of follow up RSI corner. I don't know if it's a corner yet. There's only been a couple times we've mentioned it. <sighs> it's a very sad corner. But I had a, a couple suggestions in previous episodes of a fun fact about reducing and managing RSI, repetitive strain you're using a computer a lot like i do if both your work and your hobbies uh, involve using a mouse uh, then you may occasionally get aggravated wrists and forearms and shoulders and things like that and i mentioned in a previous fun fact that if you increase your mouse sensitivity uh, and your trackpad sensitivity but more so your mouse sensitivity you can reduce the strain on your shoulder when you're mousing around because if you have uh, a lot of like big sweeping movements uh, with your mouse and you're mousing a lot then you aggravate uh, get more shoulder pain and i had cranked and i sort of joked but it's true i've uh, on the show about having increased my mouse sensitivity not to the maximum amount that they allow on mac os but used a secret but beyond that beyond that yeah. <laughs> you an even higher level because you can just type in like you can override the setting and type in like higher than 100 and it will like do it even though the slider doesn't let you go that high so it turns out that if you have (laughs) extremely high mouse sensitivity then you are using your wrist a lot more yeah that makes sense a few months of that and i started to get 
pain in my wrists instead of my shoulder mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then numbness and then weakening grip. Oh my gosh. And so I had a follow-up RSI comment. I didn't connect those two things. I had a follow-up RSI comment that uh, if you're getting you know, strain in your, in your right wrist from using your mouse too much, you, you would be surprised how easily you could switch to your left wrist and actually learn to mouse that. with your left, yeah. um, which is also a useful and true fact. Um, but then I got a little worried when, after doing that for a little while, I started to get wrist weakness and pain and numbness in my left wrist. <laughs> So a little bit of a sign that the mousing is the problem. Uh, so, yeah, I figured I would. Have you considered just using a computer less? Yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure that makes no sense. Like, like take a break. Yeah. Nah, mm, yeah. Because isn't that the whole deal? Like, you, you, if, you, if you let your body recover, it's fine. But if you push it past a certain point, then it's not fine. Yeah, that's definitely uh, at a when you're once you're starting to get the numbness and the pain and things like that. Uh, even mild, like I, the pain is not that bad. It's really just the fact that I'm getting mild pain. But it's terrifying, and it's terrifying, right? Because if I can't use yeah. a computer at all, that's way worse than if I can only use a computer like a medium amount. Right. Um. And so, and and if it's like long term damage, and so I have become very. Uh, careful i've scaled back i've ordered a bunch of ergonomic crap from the internet well i'll give reviews of how some of that is working um well your incredible salesmanship this time is sure to <laughs> help us along with our rsi sponsors yes you all are following along and have had the series of rsi problems that i have caused by you following my advice on my journey to extremely high mouse sensitivity in your left hand and ruin both of your wrists then follow along with me into the next phase alan's very sorry uh i'm very solid sorry um I but I mean, those things are true in that you, if you have, if your trouble is in your shoulder, then you can trade off your wrist and your shoulder. I just didn't realize it was a trade off. <laughs> now you know. Uh, and then maybe medium sensitivity is oh, the right my Lord. for you. Take a break. This says someone who has an investment in you not doing that. I would still yes. t- take a break. Yeah. So it turns out that editing a podcast is a fairly click intensive thing. But I have from, uh, Mr. Mike Hurley uh, got some tips on using setting up in Logic some keyboard shortcuts to reduce the amount of mousing needed and the amount of stretching and and simplifying some of the shortcuts. So that's actually been helpful. Um, Thank you, Mike. uh, You could also try Ferrite, the iOS based editor, right? Yeah. So over the next few weeks, I'll be trying a few different, you know, fads and approaches and keyboards and trying things on iPad. And uh, a lot of folks find out Wacom, Wacom, Wacom tablet uh i think that's like the like withings no one knows well calm that uh editing or just in general trying to use that sometimes for your computing uh can be helpful and then that's the kind of danger zone of becoming one of the uh, ipad lifestyle people (laughs) you start using your ipad for irsi things and then you're like oh wow having less functionality is empowering Um, (laughs) well i look forward to all of the facts that that will lead to yeah i'll try not get too far down that side but the uh i think it's useful to to kind of share and highlight some of the the rsi stuff because it's easy to just kind of ignore you're like ah, my wrist is bugging me a little bit um but it's easy to like you say to to overdo it and cause permanent damage so give us some folks on i don't think i'm at the permanent stage yet and of course i've also booked like an appointment with a an expert to help me kind of understand some of the stuff that i I should be backing off of and what stuff really just needs accommodation. Yeah. The main thing I've, I've tried to do is because I mostly get, I don't get a lot of these problems except if I'm 
in in one of my random periods of playing video games. Yeah. Which I'm not much of a video gamer, but every once in a while I'll get sucked into a game and I'll play it a lot. And then I'll notice that then I'm getting some amount of like hand or wrist pain, especially if it's on a, a system where the uh, I, my hands are pretty large and if it's on a system where the controller is a little too small and uh, and then I'm kind of gripping tightly. The one I like the least is the PlayStation controller. It's just too small for me. But um, but yeah, so then I'll I'll have to take a break and that's hard because you're that's like the middle of an obsession, right? So I downloaded the new Spider-Man PlayStation. Oh. Well, not new, but the current Spider-Man. That was the one that last gave me RSI problems. Yeah, and I am so excited to play it, and so don't play, it. preventing myself from even starting it because because yeah. that game is all about the trigger. Oh, sure. And it's like because that's how you're doing all the you know web webbing, webbing. around, mm-hmm. and it's so bad for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm gonna just sadly forlornly <laughs> yeah. leave that sitting on my playstation hard drive for a while that sucks because that game is awesome i know and i'm sure it will continue to be awesome eventually when i am no longer feeling any symptoms and then i'll go but i've been doing i mean this is you know the john syracuse path i guess is uh i've been watching more netflix and video and hey, movies thanks, and buddy. stuff yeah yeah hey i've been watching more netflix. We, we appreciate you yeah I'm count, yeah. counting up those uh, those metrics. Can you unsubscribe and resubscribe many many times? <laughs> Get the inflate the, <laughs> inflate those metrics. It's like, oh man, people really yeah. like this show, but they also really hate it. I don't know. Yeah, what and they're from us? one part of Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, hmm, stats. <laughs> it's really popular just in this one area of Vancouver. <laughs> uh, did you did you hear? I mean, this is a while ago now. Do you ever hear about the time where? Facebook was massively seeing massive increases in engagement for short video. Like they, based on their analytics, like short video was just like incredibly successful and like all of their metrics that they cared about, like really were booming when people had short videos in their feeds. And so they like massively cranked up the algorithm. So if anyone posted a short video, it would really, really promote it, even if it wasn't very good. And then after a while of that, they realized, oh, actually, no, our analytics were wrong and we were miscounting this engagement. And actually, we're just making people really annoyed (laughs) at these videos. Yeah. I mean, I think they might, maybe they've counted all their analytics wrong. Well, that's why all they do is make people annoyed. <laughs> There's kind of an infamous thing that I've the more big companies and I'm sure Netflix is not the case of this but that a lot, a lot of big companies that have a lot of data uh have come to realize that every analytic measurement is sort of suspect in a way like you know we're <laughs> Yeah, no, it's very hard. Yeah. to figure out what people cuz you're trying to use all this data that no one wants to us to be collected on us anyway to try to figure out what people actually want or think or care about in the in the giant aggregate and it's yes it's very difficult and even if you like that it's difficult even if you have the data but it's also really difficult to know what data you have because you'll right. have a number that shows up on a dashboard like uh t- the time that people have uh, engaged with a thing but then like what is engagement like if i if i when I see this thing, I'm so repulsed that I just toss my phone across the room and it stays on the screen and the engagement time is increasing still. Right? <laughs> you know, you're measuring the wrong thing. That would be amazing. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> oh, man. 